Using Isaiah as a backdrop, Jacob prophesies of the future scattering and gathering of Israel and likens it to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome again to Gospel Doctrine. This week's lesson is 2 Nephi chapter 6 through 10. Oh, how great the plan of our God. And uh, as always, should you care to ask a question on the program, send me email at gt at and we'll have some questions for you next time. Additionally, if you would like to contribute to our ongoing transcription effort, uh, in other words, if you'd like to transcribe one of the episodes of the podcast, also send me an email and I'll assign you an episode. Uh, we have a number of people who volunteered for that, and some have even already transcribed. So we'll, be, we'll have more news uh, about transcription on our next episode. Well, uh, I'm excited about this episode. Uh, it, it, it dovetails quite nicely with the last uh, chapters that we studied, uh, the, the final address of the prophet Lehi before his death. Uh, specifically, we were talking about one of the main themes of the last episode was the fact that uh, Lehi was telling his sons to to rise up from the dust and be men. And even though this address is probably something like 30 years later, uh, it this idea seems to have sunk deeply into Jacob's heart, as you might say, as uh, if you remember those words from Jacob's son Enoch, his, his father's words sank deep into his heart. And so that seems to be what has happened with, with Jacob. He's teaching us a, a very similar lesson. And by this time, what has happened is the, the people of Nephi, everyone who followed Nephi, they've established themselves in a separate place from all of the people who followed Laman and Lemuel. Nevertheless, there seems to be a certain amount of wickedness among them. And there also seems to be, I don't want to say despair, but there seems to be some real need for the prophet Jacob to encourage them. So let's, let's, this is actually a great division of chapters as well. So let's look at the structure of today's lesson. So chapter six is where he talks about uh, that I'm going to be, I'm going to be giving you a prophecy of Isaiah. Seven and eight are the words of Isaiah. Chapter nine is where he interprets those words and then gives some teaching of his own. And then chapter 10 is kind of a restatement of what he prophesied in chapter six. One of the wonderful things about the Book of Mormon as uh, Nephi understood, as, as was revealed to Nephi, was that there were plain, there were things that were called plain and most precious about the ministry of Christ and about the gospel that were included that did not have the opportunity to be lost or to be mistranslated or to be misconstrued over the centuries, and therefore they come to us undiluted in today's age. And this, this lesson is one of those examples. So in chapter 6, uh, chapter, the entirety of chapter 6 is really just a very plain prophecy of the future history of the Jews. So first of all, they will, Jacob says they've, the process of them being slain and carried away captive has, has already begun. So uh, they have been carried away from the city of Jerusalem, and we already know that. Uh, that was revealed to Lehi before he even died. And so 
we know that the scattering that Isaiah prophesied, and, and we won't bother to read those exact prophecies, but it wasn't just Isaiah. For, for over a hundred years, the prophets were saying, uh, Israel, if you don't repent, then a greater power will come in upon you. First it was the Assyrians, and then it was the Babylonians. So now we know that that's happened, but then what, what Jacob says is that they will return again, and they will be brought back to the land of Jerusalem, and then they will witness the mortal ministry of the Messiah. But because they're so hard-hearted, they will reject him and even crucify him and, uh, and slay him and, and kill their own God. And because of this, then they will become, uh, they, will be, they will be smitten, they will be scattered, and they will be afflicted all, all over the world. So we've, we're already, to go back to the beginning, we're already witnessing uh, scattering number one, and then there will be a return. They will reject God, they'll be scattered again. And then last of all, this is the point, uh, this is the reason why Jacob brings in all of these verses from, from Isaiah. Uh, he says, those who believe will be delivered from their enemies and they'll be gathered in again. They're, no matter how pow- powerful their enemies are, their former enemies will be their servants and they'll be gathered back to their homeland. So Jacob actually begins, if you go to chapter 7, you'll see that that is um, a fairly straightforward reproduction of Isaiah chapter 50. But the quotation doesn't actually begin there. It begins here in chapter 6. It begins with Isaiah 49. So Jacob begins quoting in the latter part of Isaiah 49, and then he gives a little bit of commentary. And once he gets going, then chapter 7 continues the quotation, and and it extends through Isaiah 49, 50, and 51. And I'll just briefly sort of recap. I'll paraphrase what Jacob was teaching and what Isaiah was teaching. And then I'll give uh, a little bit of commentary on chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the most profound part of today's lesson. It's uh, the most difficult to understand, the most profitable for us today. uh, And obviously it builds on the rest of them. But that's, I think if you were to reread any portion of this week's reading, you would want to spend your time in 2 Nephi chapter 9. So he begins by quoting this verse uh, that begins in 2 Nephi chapter 6, verse 6. These are the words, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles, set up my standard to the people. They shall bring thy sons in their arms, and, their, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders, and kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and queens, queens thy nursing mothers. So um, if you were to look at a modern translation of this, and this is a quote, direct quote, from uh, Isaiah chapter 49, verses 22 and 23. If you were to look at a modern translation of those two verses, basically what you would see is that kings will be their foster fathers and queens their nursing mothers. And what this means is that you think that your children are lost. You think that you've been scattered. scattered. But what you will find is that the, the great and powerful and prideful nations of the earth actually have protected and even raised and given their own, their own, uh, extended their own roof and fed and nurtured your offspring. They have brought up your own offspring and they will bring them, they will bring them back to you in that day. Now what we can kind of guess at as to what a literal tr- 
meaning or a little literal interpretation of this might be, it means that uh, the nations of Israel have been scattered abroad and they are to be found all over the world. And the day will come when the Jews or the Israelites, whether they're Jews or Christians, they will believe, they will find out that those who believe have been nurtured in every country and even been uh, included in countries that might make up part of the great and abominable church, but they'll come out of the enemies of of Israel and join themselves to Israel. So that's one idea of how this might be interpreted in a literal sense. But uh, let's, I want to skip forward a little bit to chapter 9, verse 3. Jacob talks about why he's quoting all these verses from Isaiah. He says, Behold, my beloved brethren, I speak unto you these things that ye may rejoice and lift up your heads forever because of the blessings which Lord, which the Lord God shall bestow upon your children. So we need to understand a couple of things about what is driving Jacob to do this, to teach this particular lesson. Number one, it is really important to both the Israelites and by extension the Nephites for some reason, it's really important. We don't quite understand it the way, uh, or we don't quite internalize it the way they would. It's really important that their seed be prospered, that their progeny has access to the covenants of God, to the priesthood of God. And uh, we talked last week a little bit about why that would be important to them. Part of it is that they hoped that they hoped for noble things, even royal um, descendants from their bloodlines. But it was a belief at that time, and it still is a little bit, but it was much more so that you you gained glory through your descendants. And so Abraham, for example, was, was very glorified because everyone who had done anything glorious in Israel was descended from Abraham. So he was their first father and or considered, you know, the, the progenitor of all Israelites. And therefore, much glory was returned to the head of Abraham. And they all wanted to be like Abraham. They wanted to be the father of many nations. They wanted, or as Abram, his name was before uh, it was changed to Abraham, father of a multitude, it was exalted father. So this is the ideal. This is the Jewish ideal, the Israelite ideal, the Old Testament ideal. So that's the first thing we need to understand. The second thing is there has to be some doubt about how their uh, progeny is at this moment going to turn out. So why would they need encouragement except that they were discouraged? So uh, let's examine, just looking back a couple of chapters, let's examine the situation that the Nephites are in at this point. Um, Even though Jacob doesn't say it, he's just teaching them a lesson. We can kind of infer from the fact that he's trying to help them to, to celebrate, to lift up their heads and rejoice, that they're sad. And why would they be sad but Uh, except that they're being oppressed from another people, right? So we know that the Lamanites, as as Nephi said, I've already made many copies of the sword of Laban, and I've wielded the sword of Laban in defense of my brethren, even before now, you know, several times already, before I even, before one generation passed, we've already had wars and contentions with our brethren. So 30 years later, right, this is we don't know exactly, but 30 to 40 years later even, this is when Jacob is delivering this lesson to have had many wars, and they feel like they're being oppressed. These Nephites are not the aggressors. They don't care to conquer territory. All they want is to be free and to be left alone. Now, it's part of the Lamanites' worldview that they can't leave them alone, that they are due the the reigning power 
over the Nephites. And therefore, if they ever leave the Nephites alone, then they're being stripped of their birthright. So the Lamanites can never stop being the aggressors. Their, their ideology demands it. And the Nephites can, will never be the aggressors as long as they remain true to their covenants. That is the nature of the, the narratives under which they both labor. So that's, those are the two things that we have to remember. It's very important to them. They, they're worried that they're going to be wiped off the map at some point. And they're thinking, how can I have glory? How can I be the father of a multitude, the mother of, a, of many nations? How can I have these blessings of progeny if at every moment or, or from year to year, we're being threatened with utter destruction by the Lamanites? So that's one thing that's probably going on. He doesn't say it explicitly. Uh, but that is a reason why the 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 Jews, the followers of Nephi and Jacob, they might, the Nephites, I should say, they might find these chapters very encouraging. So let's talk about why. What What is in these chapters of Isaiah? First of all, it's a, it's a prophecy of scattering and gathering. So uh, in chapter 6, Jacob already goes through what's going to happen. He says that one day the Messiah, the Lord of all, will be born in Jerusalem, or he will, be, he will condescend to live among them in the flesh, and they will reject him and crucify him. So not only will they kill him, but it will be a tortured sort of death. Uh, in chapter 9, jumping forward again, he says, uh, wait, maybe this is in chapter 10. Uh, in chapter 10, verse 3, he says, There is no, none other nation on earth that would crucify their God. So not only are they reject, do they reject their God, but they reject their God in such a way that no, no other people are wicked enough to do in human history. And that's his interpretation. I don't know whether that's an actual fact. I think there are probably a lot of wicked populations in history that might have done the same. But uh, in any case, uniquely wicked people. And because of the nature and the severity of their rejection of their God, then they are scattered again. Now, I want to bring up something about Isaiah. This is, uh, for those of you who've been listening for more than a year, you may remember when we did the Old Testament, I talked about what I call the six antecedents of Isaiah. Now, an antecedent is a word that precedes a pronoun. So if I'm going to say that John goes to the store and then he bought milk and eggs, he is the pronoun and John is the antecedent. Sometimes you can have a sentence, let's say you're talking about two men. Uh, John gave Bill two apples and Bill paid him the money. And then he was happy. So there are two antecedents there, and it's unclear which antecedent gets the pronoun he, or he refer. It's unclear which pronoun, which antecedent he refers to. So we don't know what the antecedent is. That's just a little introduction to the idea behind my six antecedents of Isaiah, because in Isaiah, throughout Isaiah, uh, the prophet, the writer of Isaiah, uses pronouns and uses stories, and we, we're we not exactly sure what the context is. We have to guess at what the antecedents of those pronouns are. We have to guess at who that story is about. And my contention, my idea, my thesis with the six antecedents of Isaiah is, in any given chapter of Isaiah, you can put six, at least, well, I shouldn't say at least, you can put up to six interpretations on what's going on in that chapter, and perhaps more. But there are six that I think it's always worth asking yourself the question, is Isaiah talking about this particular antecedent in this chapter? 
and quite often more than one of them is present. So we're going to talk a lot more about this next week when we cover the Isaiah chapters, but I'm just going to give you two of them right now. So the history, one of the antecedents is the history of the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. Um, the, the Exodus is very much seen, for example, as synonymous with baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, what did he do? He, he passed through the River Jordan, and then he immediately went into the wilderness for 40 days. And this was very analogous to the Exodus. So they passed through the Red Sea, and then they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And they were tempted and, uh, and tried and proven, and that's what happened to Jesus in the wilderness. So this was an intentional act on the part of Jesus, too, but it was also had been prophesied for thousands of years, so it was both. But the life of Jesus, and especially the ministry of Jesus, parallels in many respects the, the history of the nation of Israel, their struggles. And so one of the well-known points of connection is that Israel's exile is seen as a death. So Jesus Christ was killed on the cross and then, after three days, resurrected. Israel, after they had rejected their Messiah, this is what uh, Jacob is saying here in chapter 6, he's saying, after they reject their Messiah, they will be smitten, afflicted, and scattered to and fro among all nations, and then eventually they'll be gathered again. So another point of connection, when they're gathered, then they will never again be scattered. God will watch over them forever and ever. And in much the same way, Jesus Christ conquered death once and never has to face it again. So the question is, is the history of Israel, is there uh, exodus, is there slavery, is there scattering and gathering Is that reminiscent of the life of Christ, or is the life of Christ meant to be purposely set up to reflect the history of Israel? Uh, It's worth thinking about. But in any case, those are two of the layers on which we we can consider, or two of the interpretations upon which we can put every single chapter uh, in Isaiah. So these two chapters are no different. So we we move forward into 2 Nephi chapter 7. And what's going on in this chapter is that Jehovah finds no one righteous among the Israelites. So he says, I'll send my servant. And then uh, all of a sudden we're speaking in first person, I will do this. And you're wondering, is, it, is this Isaiah who's talking about it? Or is this uh, Jehovah talking about it? Or is it Jesus and they don't know it's Jesus? So that is the reason why uh, we have to think about the six antecedents of Isaiah. Now, modern translations quite often in Isaiah, they will indent the poetry, and they will put quote marks around things, and they will also add things like, thus saith Jehovah, where um, that didn't exist in the old, in, in the old text. They, they put those things in because it's necessary for comprehension. But what that is, is that's one person's interpretation. That's the translator's interpretation. Where does the quotation begin? It's, it's their attempt to make sense of what the antecedents are to everything that's going on in Isaiah. The problem with that is when you do that, you might even be right, but you're limiting you're limiting what you've just done to one interpretation. And I don't believe that's the intent with Isaiah. I believe we're supposed to look at this as if it could have simultaneous interpretations across many layers of understanding. And just two of those layers are the history of the people of Israel, and which is explicitly what these chapters are about, right? That's the surface meaning. And underneath, the life of the Messiah. And 
as proof, as support of this idea, uh, Jacob is going to come back in chapter 9 and talk very much about exactly why that's true. So we'll point that out. But what chapter 7 is about is uh, the servant, Jehovah's going to send his servant. And then the servant begins saying, I have received wisdom from God. I am going to, nothing can stop me from following his commandments, not even being mocked and ridiculed and having people spit on me and pull out my beard and pulling out my hair. Because Jehovah is all-powerful, he's able to endow his servant with great wisdom and power and endurance, and so everything else will pass away, but the righteousness of his servant will not pass away. The interpretation of modern Jews is that Judaism itself, Israel, the Israelites, collectively, they are the servant, and that's one valid interpretation. And the interpretation of most Christians is that Jesus Christ is the servant. Both of those, the and the, the controversy is which of those interpretations is valid. In my opinion, they're both valid. So there's no point in fighting because the, the purpose of Isaiah was always to be ambiguous in this way because we are supposed to see those two things as being parallels. Uh, and so you see uh, language in chapter 7 like you, uh, the, the earth will wax old or the earth will pass away like a garment and the heavens will wax old and all men are as grass. Uh, many times we read this, modern readers, we read this and we think, oh, this is uh, a prediction about the tribulations that will come before the second coming. It, it's a sudden destruction that this is talking about. But waxing old is something that happens very slowly and gradually. And so the point now is that uh, the, the ser- it's not that the servant is going to destroy something the way a moth would destroy it, but that the servant is going to endure so long that the destruction comes upon everyone but him. In other words, he has patience to wait on the Lord. It's a little bit different way to see these, these promises. So he's, he's going to watch God's enemies wither and fade. In, and that continues right into chapter 51. So first, the wicked are going to be separated out, and, and the servant of God is, first of all, he finds no one righteous, and then he's going to watch all of the wicked wither and fade. So Chapter 7 is sort of the promises to the wicked, and it's sort of the condemnations for, the, for Israel's failure to remain faithful. And then chapter 8 are the promises to the righteous. The first verse, I want to read this and, and then give you an interpretation. Uh, and along the way, by the way, I hope you can understand a very good way to not only get Isaiah as you read it, but also look forward to it. So the first thing I did here, I, I, I started reading chapter 8. It says at the top, compare Isaiah 51 and a couple of verses of 52. And so if, you, if there's anything, if there's any language that you don't understand or that seems just a little bit difficult for you, then go to BibleHub.com and look up that corresponding chapter in Isaiah and the verses that you're looking at and see what modern translations have had to say. Not so that you can get your doctrine from those modern translations, but simply so that you can have comprehension of what's going on. In this case, I'm going to read you this verse. This is 2 Nephi chapter 8, verse 1. Hearken unto me, ye that follow after righteousness. Look unto the rock from whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit from whence ye are digged. Now, this is a clear reference to, if you look in modern translations, it says, look to the rock from which you're carved, and to the quarry from which you were mined. So 
what Isaiah is saying is, you are building blocks. You Israelites are building blocks of a mighty building. And if you want to understand where you come from, then you have to go back to the stone, to the quarry from which you came. This is all to make a point. The next verse says what the point is. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah she that bare you. For I called him alone and blessed him. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving, and the voice of melody. So making a desert like a garden is exactly like what happened to Abraham and Sarah. What he's saying is, if you want to know where you come from, look back to Abraham and Sarah and consider what I did for them. What did I do for them? They were both. Abraham was a hundred and Sarah was 90 years old, and I gave them a child. I gave them the son that would allow them to receive this blessing that I promised them, that of being uh, parents of many nations, exalted parents. And I did that in their old age to prove that it, all of these blessings come from me, from me, Jehovah. They don't come because of your strength, your particular fertility, your ability, your, your wisdom, to create a family or any of that. I have chosen you and I have prospered you because you have been faithful and for no other reason. So if you want if you want to lose hope before you do, look back to where you come, came from and see the miracles that have gotten you this far. And you should understand that if you look around and see a desert, as the Nephites are doing, right? They're looking around, and I don't mean literally, but if they if they look into the future, they might see our people are going to be eventually, there's going to be no one here. There's going to be desolation. And the the Lamanites might utter, utterly destroy us. For sure, we live in a state, in a precarious state. And what Jacob is saying, the reason he's quoting all of this is he wants them to see, we come from Abraham and Sarah. The Lord is capable of taking what we have, this little that we have, and from a seemingly hopeless state, multiply it manyfold until we fill the earth right? Or we fill the nation or we fill the land of Canaan, whatever the promised land might be. The Lord is capable of fulfilling that promise. So that's what, that's the meaning of the first three verses here of chapter eight, second Nephi chapter eight. So that's what the hole for which ye were digged means. It is worthwhile to look up modern translations, especially when you're dealing with Isaiah, because as what they call the Jacobian language, uh, and all that means is that the uh, original Greek root of James and Jacob is the same word. So instead of saying Jamesian, which from the King James Version, uh, scholars talk about Jacobian language, which means the King James language. So instead of trying to get the King, the Jacobian language on its surface, you might as well just get the context from another translation so that you can get what's going on and then come back to the King James Version. Now, um, this leads us into another idea. So, and I've touched on this briefly in a couple of previous lessons, but how much, here's, here's the question put bluntly, how much Joseph Smith is there in the Book of Mormon? Some people think, as we, and we've called it a tight and loose translation, some people think that Joseph Smith had absolutely nothing to do with the wording of the Book of Mormon, and God knew exactly what English words would correspond with what was uh, engraved on the plates, and all he needed was somebody to take a one-to-one correspondence to those words and put it on paper. And Joseph Smith was inspired enough to do that using the tools that he had at hand. Now, other people look at chapters like uh, the Isaiah chapters that we're looking at now. And to me, this, this 
conclusion seems almost inescapable. They look at this and they say, okay, wait, the fact that this shows up not just kind of similar, but almost exactly like the Jacobian language, the King James wording of the Bible, the fact that those two things are almost exactly similar tells me that Joseph Smith, first of all, if you were to go back any modern translation, as you see from BibleHub.com, you see any modern translation is going to word those ancient verses differently. They're going to go back to Isaiah, and if you were to render that into English at any point, except for the exact scholars and the exact timing of the King James Version, you're going to come up with a different result. So the fact that Joseph Smith came up with the same result, to me the inescapable inescapable conclusion is that God was working through Joseph Smith's mind in a conceptual way, not in a word-for-word way, and that the ideas would be communicated to Joseph Smith, and Joseph Smith was familiar enough or influenced enough or close enough, perhaps even physically, to a Bible that that these are the words that his mind and his spirit found to render these ideas into, the ideas that the words which with which he was already familiar in the King James Version. If you try to say that Joseph Smith didn't insert himself into that process, then you have to come up with another reason why the modern English rendering of those golden plates so closely resembles the King James Version of the Bible. I don't know of another satisfactory explanation. So that's uh, that's something else that comes up as we're discussing uh, Jacobian language, so-called. So we're still in chapter 8, uh, 2 Nephi chapter 8. And so that's the message, is that God is capable of bringing you back. Uh, we find this message also, by the way, a very similar message in Ezekiel chapter 37. You'll recall that Ezekiel is brought out to a valley where there are many dry bones or skeletons on the earth, and it's a desert place. And there are dead bodies there to the point they're so desiccated that it's just a valley of dry bones. And he witnesses the the bones being stood one upon the other until finally a great wind blows through. And these bones that were lying in the dust, they arise, and when the wind blows the breath of God into them, they become living people, a mighty army. And uh, Ezekiel explicitly links that to the gathering of Israel. It's like a resurrection of a dead thing. And that is what Isaiah is doing. So Ezekiel didn't come up with that idea from its core. He certainly expressed it in a new and interesting way. But Isaiah also expresses this idea that returning from exile is a form of resurrection. That's the point that Jacob will make in chapter 9. We'll get to that in just a moment. So while Zion will flourish, even though it's a desert today, it will flourish almost like a tropical paradise. Anyone who opposes it will age and die, and God will free free his people and bring them back, even though there there might be an ocean in the way. He brings in some exodus, some some Red Sea language here. Uh, One of the ways is, I'm God who, who who commands the waves of the sea. Um, I want to point out something here um, in chapter 8, verse 19. This is in the middle of a passage that's talking about the anger of the Lord. If you go back to 17, you'll see Israel is, at this point, drinking the cup of the fury of God. And in verse 19, these two, so no children are left to Israel except for these two sons are come unto thee. Now, if you look in the footnote, 
the footnote uh, calls you to Revelation chapter 11, verse verse 3, and says that this is a mention of the two witnesses that will testify to the people of Jerusalem in the latter days. That's one interpretation of this. Now, there is a much more obvious interpretation that if that if that is if it so be that that is a correct interpretation of this verse it is an underlying one the the surface interpretation of this verse is the two sons of israel the only two sons that will be left are desolation and destruction famine and sword so famine and desolation and and uh Destruction and sword are you there's parallelism there. So this is the same thing said twice, right? So desolation means the land will be deserted because of famine. There'll be nothing to eat, everyone will die off. And fam and uh, destruction and sword. So the who whoever hunger doesn't get, then war will take the rest. And those are the children. They they will if you look in verse twenty, uh, thy sons have fainted, save these two. They lie at the head of all the streets. As a wild bull in the net, they are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of thy God. Now, if you read these verses and you think, oh, these are the two servants that will be sent to testify to Jerusalem in the latter days, it also works. But the surface meaning, I guarantee it, the surface meaning of these verses is that the the anger of God will be upon Jerusalem. Now, you look at uh, chapter 17, or I'm sorry, verse 17. Stand up, O Jerusalem, which has thou which hast drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Now down in verse 21, uh, we read, Therefore hear now this, thou afflicted, and drunken, and not with wine. So what has Israel been drinking? They've been drinking the cup of the fury of the Lord. If we skip forward to 2 Nephi chapter 27, verse 1, we also learn that all the nations round about Israel they will be drunken on iniquity and all manner of abominations. So they're drunk not only on their wickedness, but they're drunk on the judgments that come because of their wickedness. And this is true of Israel. This is a this is a an image that Isaiah uses not only to apply to Israel, but also to apply to those who oppress Israel. And the promise here in, in chapter 8 is that God will free his people and bring, bring them back, even though an ocean might be in the way. Um... The, the unclean, at the very end of the chapter, we read, the unclean will no longer come into your cities. Your enemies will serve you, just like queens being your nursing mothers and kings being your nursing fathers. The, the enemies that you have, even their rulers, will serve you. They will, ki- they will kiss the dust and lick up the dust from your feet. The, in other words, all the pride that your enemies once had will turn into abject humility on, in the day that the Lord change, turns the tables on those who are wicked. So these are fantastic promises. They basically say if you remain faithful, then even though it's generations and years and and eons down the line, then the Lord can and will redeem his people. He'll bring out a remnant of your seed and restore them to the former glory. And even though you think your seed is lost and destroyed, God can take of that desert place and make of it a fruitful field and a fruitful country. And uh, now Jacob takes this one step farther. So now we'll go into uh, chapter 9. And he says, the, in verse 2, he says, the mouth, the, God has spoken unto the Jews by the mouth of his holy prophets, even from the beginning, from generation to generation, that they shall be restored to the true church and fold of God when they shall be gathered home to the lands of their inheritance and shall be established in all their lands of promise. 
And uh, again, I want to reiterate verse 3. I, I speak unto you these things that ye may rejoice and lift up your heads forever. So I know that you're discouraged because of the existential crisis, the the warring and, and the violence that we're all subject to and that we could be subject to in the future. But I want you to rejoice because God, basically God has your back. He's on your side. And if you're righteous, your, your blessings cannot be taken away no matter what happens. Um, so verses four through six, he says, as death has pa- hath passed upon all men, uh, this is verse six now, to fulfill the merciful plan of the great creator, there must needs be a power of resurrection. And the resurrection must needs come unto man by the reason of the fall. And the fall came by reason of transgression. And because man became fallen, they were cut off from the presence of the Lord. So in verses four through six, Jacob goes right from talking about the scattering and gathering of Israel to the to the death of man because of the fall and the resurrection. So he is explicitly likening uh, the sa- the salvation of man, the plan of salvation, to the history of the people of Israel. That's another layer, by the way, of the antecedents of Isaiah is the plan of salvation. So there's the life of the Messiah, there's the history of Israel, there's the plan of salvation. We'll talk about next week what the other three are. And uh, in this chapter, the, the whole first part of the chapter is basically Jacob saying, we, we Israel, are living out as, as part of the history of Israel, we're living out the story of the plan of salvation. We are a type of things to come. And that is what Nephi meant when he said, you can liken the words of Isaiah unto yourselves. This is exactly what he meant, is that we are living out the story that is symbolizing the plan of salvation. Um, verse 7, I want to point out something here. The word atonement doesn't occur before this. It says, wherefore, it must needs be an infinite atonement. But before this point, Jacob wasn't talking about the atonement. But where where would they, where would the people listening to him, where would they have heard about the atonement? To them, what atonement means is that on the day of atonement, we take an animal without blemish, the first the, the firstborn of its mother, and we kill it on the altar outside the temple, and we carry the blood through from the altar of the temple, through the veil, into the holy place, through the double veil, into the holy of holies, and we sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant. And in so doing, we wash away the sins of all of Israel. That is atonement. So this is temple language, and it is language that says uh, God gives us an unearned gift when we do this, when we trade blood for forgiveness. He, give us an, he gives us an unearned gift where he redeems us from the fall as we journey through the temple from, from the world we live in now to the back to the Garden of Eden, which is symbolized by the holy place, to the kingdom of God itself, which is symbolized by the holy of holies. So when he says it must needs be an infinite atonement, what he's saying is I want you to extend, I want you to extrapolate from what you already know about atonement, and I want you to understand we're now talking about this Messiah that I mentioned first in chapter 6, you know, before I before I started quoting Isaiah, I want you to understand that atonement now applies to what he will do. It applies to the to the death and the sacrifice that he will do. This is new doctrine for them. That's I guess that's where I'm going with this. He is using temple language to explain what Jesus will do and why the death of Jesus Christ is important. And he's likening it all to the exile and to the return and to the eventual uh, recreation or the new Jerusalem of the people of Israel. So 
in doing that, he's giving them plenty of parallels where they, where they can understand exactly what the atonement of Christ means spiritually and where it fits historically and what it can do for them personally. And those are, those are very important layers in understanding Isaiah. And so he has just, in a masterful way, taken Isaiah and likened it to them in one lesson and done it on three different layers in a way that they can't mistake. It's, it's part of the plainness of the Book of Mormon, and it's wonderful. So to go on in verses 8 through 12, he talks about what would have happened if we had no atonement. We would have remained fallen and lost. And then in verses 13 through 19, he talks about the judgment and justice of God. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time reading these verses, but uh, these are all doctrines that are contained, that are sort of hinted at or symbolized in the chapters he's just read. And this is a divinely inspired commentary on these chapters of Isaiah. By the way, what immediately follows these chapters in the original scroll of Isaiah, but the uh, what are called the most messianic chapters in all of Isaiah, so chapters 52 and 53 of Isaiah are where people say, yes, where Christians say, look, you can't deny that this is talking about Christ. Now, actually, Jews can deny that, but they are they are quite uh, explicit for Christians reading this. This is the way that we receive it, is that those are messianic chapters and there's no two ways about it. So those are the chapters. Basically, Jacob stops just short of those chapters where he starts talking about um, the servant suffering more and more and more. And he gives a, a very inspired commentary on those two chapters leading up to that messianic, messianic passage. Uh, chapter 18 talks about how, I'm sorry, verse 18 talks about how uh, the righteous and the saints of the Holy One of Israel, they who have believed on the Holy One of Israel, I'm reading now uh, 2 Nephi chapter 9, verse 18, they who have endured the crosses of the world and despised the shame of it, they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you were wondering whether uh, Jacob is explicitly tying the people he's talking to to the life of the Messiah, now all you have to do is scroll back or turn back if you're reading your scriptures physically to Second Nephi chapter 7. So turn back a couple of chapters. And in verse 7, he says, or in verse 6, I gave my back to the smiter, my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair, I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. So this is exactly the same idea as I despise the shame of the world. So in verse 18, what Jacob is saying is we have to be exactly like this suffering servant from Isaiah chapter 50. We have to endure the crosses of the world. He will literally endure the cross, as I have now, I, Jacob, have now said more than once. I said he will be crucified. He will endure the cross of the world. We have to endure the crosses of the world. He will uh, despise the shame of the world. We have to despise the shame of the world. If we do this, they, as he says in the middle of verse 18, they shall inherit the kingdom of God, which was prepared for them from the foundation of the world, and their joy shall be full forever. So that word forever, that idea of forever, has been used by Isaiah in these chapters to talk about how long Israel will enjoy its prosperity after it's gathered by God. God will protect them from, he will protect them from all their enemies forever. And they will live under his prosperity and blessings forever. 
And now, so this is very explicit, the parallel that Jacob keeps drawing. He keeps finding different points to connect our lives, our choices, and the lives of Israel and the lives of the Messiah. So the, the, the plan of salvation, the life of Jesus, and the history of Israel, three of the, three of the important layers in understanding Isaiah. As we go forward, Jacob explains the universal nature of God's plan in verses 20 through 24. He talks about how it applies to everyone. And in 25 and 26, he says, salvation also is available to everyone. So God's plan, no one can escape the need for God's plan. Even the people who don't ever hear about it, they fall under the sway of the atonement and greater mercy is extended to them. And and for those who need salvation uh, explicitly, who need to choose it in this life, it's available to everyone. And in verse, and then he then he starts talking about all of the deceits and the counterfeits of Satan. So there's a very well known verse here, and it says, "Oh, that the wicked plan of the evil one." Right? You all know this verse, uh, verse 28: the cunning plan of the evil one, the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men. When they are learned, they think they are wise. So wisdom is not the same as being learned, and rich is not the same as being saved. And he's saying you don't. If just because you're learned and rich doesn't mean you're wise or that you're saved. You could be deaf, spiritually deaf, right? You could be blind, spiritually blind. You could be uncircumcised of heart, a liar, a murderer. You could commit whoredoms, idolatry. If you do any of these things, you have fallen prey to one of Satan's counterfeits. And nobody who fits that description can receive the blessings of the plan of salvation. In other words, as he, as he sums it up, to be carnally minded is death. And to be spiritually minded is life eternal. So he has now tied death, which which Jesus suffered, right? Uh, and life eternal, which is what Jesus was resurrected into and what he has told us we will all be resurrected into. He's now likened it to our own uh, spiritual progression to the plan of salvation. So once again, he's tied uh, Jesus's death. He's tied the life of Jesus, what Jesus went through, the, the ministry of the Messiah, to our own personal plan of salvation and to the history of Israel. Now, shortly after that point comes my favorite verse from all of these chapters, uh, and this is 2 Nephi chapter 9, verse 42. And I'm just going to read it first, then we'll talk about it a little bit. Whoso And whoso knocketh to him will he open, and the wise and the learned, and they that are rich, who are puffed up because of their learning and their wisdom and their riches, yea, they are they whom he despiseth. And say they shall cast these things away and consider themselves fools before God and come down in the depths of humility, he will not open unto them. Okay, so I want to just interpret this a little bit and I want to, I want to get a little deeper in our understanding of it. First of all, the, the promise at the end there is he will not open unto them. But at the, at the beginning of the verse it says, Whoso knocketh, to him will he open. So this verse is actually giving us a definition of what it means to knock. When God says, knock and it shall be opened unto you, then uh, he also says, seek and you shall find, ask and it shall be given to you. But we don't know exactly what it means to knock. Here is Jacob giving us sort of indirectly a definition of what it means to knock. So if we don't consider ourselves, if we don't cast away these things, consider ourselves fools before God, and come down in the depths of humility, he won't open unto us. But if we knock, he will open unto us. So by the rules of logic, if we don't do these things and he won't open unto us, but if we knock, he will, we know that the opposite of what he's talking about is knocking. In other words, 
Knocking is here defined as casting things away that give us pride, considering ourselves fools before God, and coming down in the depths of humility. So anywhere you read in the scriptures where it says, Seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Or uh, seek and you shall find, ask and you shall receive, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Now you know what it means to knock. It means that you're willing to humble yourself and consider yourself a fool before God. Take, take what you think is your wisdom and put it aside. Cast, as, or as it says in this verse, cast such things away and consider yourself a fool before God. Now I want to note there are three things that are mentioned here twice. One is uh, learning, another is wisdom, and then riches. These are three things upon which people might build uh, a positive image of themselves, but also their strengths, right? If you are rich, then you have the ability to move resources about. If you're wise, then you have ability to plan and uh, and have your plans come to fruition. If you're if you're learned, it means that you understand the way the world works. All of these things are strengths. And what Jacob is saying is you need to cast away things that you might consider strengths because they're standing in the way of you being humble. It's only when you're able to cast away that pride that comes from any of the strengths that you think you have and take full humility, basically humble yourself to the dust, then God will open unto you. The blessings that are promised to those that God opens unto the blessings that are promised to those who actually knock the way that this verse describes are so myriad and so plentiful that anyone would have everything they could ever possibly want if they receive those blessings. So it's worth it. It is worth it to knock. It is worth it to make sure that you are receiving every blessing that comes from being humble. Now, this verse to me is very reminiscent of that best verse of all, uh, Ether chapter 12, verse 27, where it says the, the Lord w- gives us weaknesses that we can be humble. And if we will humble ourselves before him and pray in him and have faith in him, then he can make these weak things strong unto us. Now, this doesn't talk about weak things. This verse here in 2 Nephi chapter 9, it talks about strong things. So these two verses go together. One talks about how we can take our weaknesses and make, have them make us humble. And the other talks about how we take our strengths and cast them away and humble ourselves. In either case, I love this language. We have to consider ourselves fools before God. Now, remember, it is possible to be very intelligent in this world. It's possible to get a lot of education. It's possible to learn a number of things, to have a lot of experience. And then we might think, and I've seen it happen to myself. I've seen it happen to other people. We might think that we have it all figured out, especially spiritually. We might think, well, how, what was God thinking when he did this, and the minute, we, the minute we go there in our thoughts, then we've taken this whole I'm smart idea to the point where Satan wants us to go instead of where God wants us to go, which is I may be smart, and now I get the opportunity to recognize that there is one who will always be more intelligent than I. So that's the lesson of Second Nephi chapter 9, verse 42, a wonderful, wonderful lesson. So then after this, uh, Jacob shakes his garments, symbolically saying, I have now testified of you, uh, uh, to you of everything that you need to know about. Um, and in chapter 10 now, he restates the predictions from chapter 6, the gathering, the crucifixion, the scattering, and the second gathering. And he, 
he actually makes some of Isaiah's promises specific. He likens them to those uh, who live only in the Americas. Now, you remember that Nephi had a great vision of the future of, of his seed and how uh, the European settlement would occur and how they'd be driven driven to and fro and smitten, and then they would be redeemed, etc. And so Jacob brings in some of those prophecies, and he helps fit them in, in verses 11 through 14 and 19 through 22, he helps fit them in with what's going on in Isaiah's prophecies. And so he sort of integrates Nephi's prophecy, Nephi's vision, and Isaiah's prophecies. But in verse 23, he restates something that I think... Uh, should be the main point of our lesson today. It was, it was the main point of our lesson last week. In verse 23, I'm going to read this. Therefore, cheer up your hearts and remember that ye are free to act for yourselves, to choose the way of everlasting death or the way of eternal life. Now, remember one of the main images that Lehi used when he was speaking to his sons for the last time was, Arise from the dust, my sons, and be men. Arise from the dust, which we talked about earth in Hebrew is Adama. One, one word for, for earth is Adama. And be men, he may have said, Adam. So arise from Adama and become Adam. Now, uh, for those sisters out there, Adam does not actually mean men. It actually means mankind. It's mostly translated as men because, in uh, again, this is an English uh, idiom, not a Hebrew one. But when people in the time the King James Version was written, when they said men, they meant everyone. And so for those of you who, who might think that it feels exclusionary, that was not uh, the way it originally was in Hebrew. Adam meant all of mankind. So uh, Lehi's message was, arise from the dust, be human beings, be men and women, uh, be the people that God created you to be. The dust was something to be acted upon as Lehi talked about, God created things to be to act and things to be acted upon. The dust, the Adama, was something to be acted upon. But then he says explicitly, men are things to are were created to act. God took the dust and he breathed into it, and then it became a living soul. So we are dust, but we also have the breath of God. And because of that, we are not Adama, we are Adam. And this is an echo of that lesson. This is Jacob saying, I remember my father's lesson. Remember that you are free to act for yourselves. You are not Adama. You are Adam. You are not meant to be uh, acted upon, but you are meant to act. Now, what does this mean? It means that we don't get to give the responsibility for our choices to any other person. No matter what happens to us, terrible things might happen, and they do all the time. And terrible things, there are many people listening that have had things far worse than I have ever had happen to me. And yet I don't have a hard time saying this to you. God still will hold you responsible for your choices. Now your choices will be different than they would be if I made them. So uh, C.S. Lewis made a big deal of this, right? He said, there are some people for whom just not growling at somebody else is all they can do. And what God will do with that choice is he will give them the same amount of quote unquote credit as you or I might get for spending our entire lives in charitable acts. So God definitely takes our context into consideration. Nevertheless, uh, there are plenty of people who have had terrible things happen to them, and they have taken of that, uh, that awful past, and they have made of it a glorious present and future. They have taken a, a passive abuse, for example, and they have made it a charity where abused people can go for help. 
And that's just one example. And I'm, what I'm not saying is that we all have a duty to create a charity where abused people can go for help. What I'm saying is the lesson of the Book of Mormon is clear. The lesson of the prophets is clear that God expects us to be responsible for our choices and to act and not be acted upon. And that shouldn't, if that, if that actually makes us feel defensive, then that means we're caught up in that, let me put it this way, we're caught up in the attitude of being Adama rather than Adam. If we don't like the idea that we're responsible for our own choices and that we are called to act and not be acted upon, then that means that we have adopted this attitude that I want to be something that's acted upon. And I refuse to take responsibility for my choices. I don't want the breath of God. I want to remain dust. And what Lehi's challenge to his sons was, arise from the dust. Get rid of this attitude that tells you that you are as something to be acted upon and accept the destiny of God when he breathed life into you that you are to act, that you are called upon to act forever and to be responsible forever. And if it so be that you despise the shame of the world and you are willing to take upon you the crosses of the world, then glory will be added on your heads forever and ever. So that's the wonderful lesson of uh, the these chapters, chapters 6 through 10 of Second Nephi. That's the wonderful lesson of the prophet Jacob. And the wonderful lesson of the Book of Mormon is that we are called upon to be human beings in the images of God, that we are, that God has created out of the dust that gave birth to us a living soul that has the divine ability to choose and to act, to receive blessings, to receive curses, and to have glory added upon our heads forever and ever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.